if you could please stand with me in reverence for God's word. And I'll be reading Genesis chapter 1, 3 verses 26, or actually to the end of the chapter, sorry. Yeah, yeah, to the end of the uh, 26 to 28, and then uh, verses chapter 2, 18 to 25. So I'll begin chapter 1, verse 20, 26 in Genesis. I'm reading from the New American Standard Version. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And now chapter 2, verse 18 through the end of chapter 2, verse 25. Verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. There he, then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh of that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his woman and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you, Tom. And we move forward in our series on really the doctrine of creation, just really the first couple pages of the Bible is where we've been dwelling these recent weeks, and I think it's such an important topic as you think about uh, the great confusion uh, in the time in which we live and how the Bible just wonderfully, graciously uh, gives us this anchor. So remember, we started by looking only at the first five words of the Bible. In the beginning, God created. And this in and of itself distances uh, the way we see the world from naturalism, right? That it's not that we're here by chance, some kind of cosmic accident, but rather there's a good God who stands outside of time and space, who spoke matter into existence, that it's all his. We think about the implications of that, that we occupy God's theater of glory, that every place we go, all that we can look at really belongs to him, that we're his creatures, that he's good, he's more powerful than we can ever comprehend, and we can rest in him. You know, you inevitably get that question, right, when you say, oh, I believe in God, and somebody says, oh, well, you know, who created God? You say, those who ask that question, you say they've really misunderstood the claim of the Bible, right? It's not that God's one of the other created things. 
The claim is that there's a God outside of time and space who's supremely powerful and supremely good, who speaks matter into existence, and we occupy his creation and we're his creatures. And then from there, we looked at the rest of chapter 1, and so many Christians lose their way on chapter 1, right? We start debating about the length of days or when this story occurred. And you say that, we really miss the, the punch of the narrative. The chapter 1 is about God fashioning the universe, imposing an order on his cosmos to make it just right for human life, right? He makes and he ordains, he fashions, he makes it as if somebody played with the dials. And if you remember, you say it's not lost on a lot of modern physicists and mathematicians who will talk about things like the beauty of mathematics. And that reminded us, right, the fundamental choice is not between God and science, which some would have us believe, but the choice that we've tried to articulate, as the Bible does, is between God and blind chance. Say, we're on the side of a good God who created everything and fashioned it and formed it all just right for the crown of his creation, right? Human beings, homo sapiens. Why are we different? You remember? Because we have souls. We're made in his image, right? God intimately breathes into human beings that we're soulish. We're made to be everlasting, to live into eternity, to be with him. That's why we explain things like how we explain things like consciousness and free will, which every naturalist really struggles with. How do you get from simple proteins to very complex things like the human brain? Well, again, the Bible, very clear. God breathes into human beings. We're made in his, in his image that we're creators, we're representatives, we're rational. And because of that, we can delight in him and reflect who he is. We're here for his glory. And then last week, I think Pastor Ian looking at Psalm 139, which is a great kind of uh, play on Genesis chapter 1, right? If you remember God intimately knitting the human life in the womb, that he's fashioned each life and made it just right for him, that it's not by chance that we're here, but rather because of a good God. And you see that these broad strokes, how well they position the faithful reader of Scripture. Again, you say you're not raised in the church, you don't think about God, you think about your answers to these questions of origins and morality and so forth. You say things like, I guess I'm here by chance. I can't talk about a purpose for my life or the universe, uh, that I gotta make my way and just out-compete everybody else. That's about the best answers you can give. Alternatively, Scripture, right? This is God's world. We're made for his glory. There's a purpose to our lives where to represent him far more satisfactory, and I think if we're honest, relates well to what we feel deep inside. Now, strikingly, on the level of those topics, we get today to something altogether different, don't we? That is marriage. That in the first page or two of the Bible, you have the first wedding, the wedding of Adam and Eve. And as you think about this topic, I realize that this is a very delicate matter say, okay, you're talking about origins and morality and science and things like that. That's not personal, but now you're getting to something personal when you're talking about marriage. And I want to be clear, some of the things I'm going to say today, I realize are very delicate and increasingly delicate in the culture in which we find ourselves. And I, I really don't mean to offend. Uh, I'm not trying to press anyone's buttons. I just today would like to look at what the Bible says about marriage and its importance and how God would envision what it means uh, to be husband and wife. But we can't ignore the fact that in the first couple pages of the Bible, we do see a marriage, a union between one man and one woman. So today, I know that some in the room, you're single. You're involuntarily single. 
that you wish that you uh, would have been given the gift of a spouse, but that day is not come. And I hope today is not a day where you say, well, I don't want to uh, you know, even think about this message, but rather I hope you'd say, look, I am still thinking about a spouse and who would make a, a, the, the right spouse, and I want to encourage my married friends. And I hope that you say, uh, ultimately, yes, Christ is the only perfect marriage partner. And even if you're single today, that there's much to gather here. Others in the room that you say you're divorced or have been divorced. And I think a lot of times the church has not done a good job. You say, well, if you're divorced, there's no place for you here. You're kind of tarnished goods. You say, may it not be so that all of us need to be redeemed. And if you're divorced, what an important voice you have to look back and say, you know what? We didn't at some point follow the biblical blueprint. And that's a very important voice. And we all sit at the, at the, the feet of the same cross, so to speak. And if you're divorced, I hope you'd be able to see, yes, look at how nicely God set up marriage. And there, there's much there. And I want to point others to that truth. Others in the room, you say you're in a, in a bad marriage. You're married to someone who, who doesn't hold to the same view of the Bible as not uh, adhering to the scriptural mandate so far. They always say, what do you do then? You say, well, you, you're the salt and light in that relationship. Say, I love those stories that occasionally we have where there's a long marriage, one spouse a believer, the other not, and over time that that non-believing spouse comes to faith because of the example of the one in their home. You say, is that the call? You say, yes, I must model what it means to be a Christian in this relationship that is the closest to home. But all those things being said, I think our goal is to, no matter where we're at, to say we've all been imperfect in the area of, uh, of relationships and sexuality and gender, but to really say with the writer of Hebrews in chapter 13, verse 4, to say we want to hold marriage in high honor and say that is going to distinguish us in, indeed from the kind of prevailing cultural winds, that we want to hold marriage in high honor and we want to understand how God has laid it out, his parameters even from the foundation of the world so we have done much haven't we uh, to confuse it to redefine it to be embarrassed by it uh, to hold it lowly you say our culture is guilty of all those things but notice what is God's vision for marriage laying it out and what a good plan it is and how do we imperfect people hold it in high regard and rely on Christ uh, to make it a more perfect union taken from a different context. So the first thing we've got to notice from our passages today, really chapter two is a, a zoom in of the end of chapter one. So God makes man male and female the end of chapter one. Then we zoom in more intimately to the marriage. That's why we had those two readings. Uh, but the first thing we have to notice is how marriage and a spouse are um, presented as a good gift. That marriage is to be thought primarily as a gift from God. Say, well, that doesn't sound like much, but if you think about it, think about how different others have talked about marriage. Then no doubt you have some that view it, uh, you know, as a kind of necessary evil, right? At least this is the view in antiquity. You say, well, I, you know, I, I should bring other children into the world, and I need my domestic affairs arranged, and I guess that, uh, you know, I need to be provided for whatever it is, and I need to be in this relationship because that's the kind of thing I'm supposed to do. It's just a necessary evil. Or others, like, the line in Cervantes's, uh, Cervantes' Don Quixote, right, that marriage is a noose. Uh, it's this great limitation that I know I've, a lot of buddies, you sit around the pub, right? They joke about the old ball and chain. It's a marriage is this institution that just drags you down. Say, is that the view that the Bible presents? What I hope we see at the very least is that marriage as God set it up is presented as a good and wonderful gift. And before we get to marriage, I think we even have to start at a place before that. That is the good gift of our bodies as male and female. 
you know, who would think that I, I bet if you interviewed any pastor, didn't matter what denomination 100 years ago, to say that you would uh, engage the topic of gender with great trepidation, they would laugh. You'd say, but here we are. This is one of the most delicate areas in our culture, and I'm aware of that. I don't mean to step on toes. But let's try to take an honest assessment of how Scripture presents it, and particularly in verse 27 of chapter 1, right? God created humans in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Then male and female, he created them. That there are two genders, and both is a good gift from God. That our bodies and our anatomies and how we've been made and our chemistry are to be treated as good gifts from God not something to be shunned and manipulated and embarrassed about. You say, that's exactly where we find ourselves. You see, again, for many centuries, that there were certain categories that we could say were sacred to a lot of people. In other words, this was off limits. And one of those was how you were made male and female, right? That's just who I am. It's an essential good. It's, it cuts to the core of who I am. That's, that's uh, unapproachable ground. It's a given that you're a male or a female. So that's the biblical view. But we've done is we've said, well, actually, that too is up for grabs. That we live in a time where we tell a lot of people, they, young people, they can't even trust their own bodies you think about what that does again you think about where we've come even in the last decade or so say for all human history you had reality the way things really were one of those things would be our bodies and our chemistry right it's a given and if there was a disconnect between your mind and your body what you had to do is um, through uh, virtue formation right through uh, some other means is to get your mind around thinking differently in order to conform to reality right so that's the way it was for many millennia you get your mind what it meant to train in virtue to be saturated in the scriptures to form the mind so that the mind is conformed to way the way reality really is is how God has done it now you're already ahead of me you see what we've done we said actually because of autonomy, we believe in the individual's right to do whatever they feel like, is that we've said, actually, you need to bend reality in your body to fit your mind. That the body's no longer this sacred thing that's given thing, but rather you're to conform the body, you're to manipulate even to the point of mutilating healthy organs to conform your mind. You see what a disaster this causes on young people. You know, you don't think this much about this, but you only need to look at somebody like a guy named Paul McHugh. McHugh was the leading uh, psychiatrist for many decades at uh, Johns Hopkins. And Johns Hopkins pioneered these uh, gender reassignment surgeries. And McHugh, uh, right on the forefront of this, after watching it for years, he says, we've got to stop this. We can't be for the mutilation of healthy organs. We can't because people have these reassignment surgeries. We've told them that their bodies can be manipulated to fit uh, the way that they're, they're thinking at the time. He says it's been disastrous. And as we plow down this course as a culture, you say this disintegrated model. And I like that. You say we've disintegrated the mind and the body. You said, oh, you can have it both. You know, you can play around with those things. Again, instead of scripture's view, male and female, he created them. You can rest in God to think about what God says, to be right with him, and that's where we're gonna be most free, not adapting ourselves and trying to be something ultimately that, that uh, we, we want to be at the time, but rather to rest in God and to trust his plan and to recognize our bodies as good gifts. Male and female, he created them. Our bodies are good. May our minds then be shaped to the way reality is, may we trust in God and we need his grace to do that even in our fallenness. So our bodies are good, male and female, he created them. These are created goods by God. Now notice here too, 
that there's a literary motif in these chapters, and it, it has to do with this word good. So all through chapter one, you say you're just kind of a casual reader. You look at how many times God, uh, every time God acts, it's declared good. You say, take a look at verses 10, 12, 18, 21, 25, then 31. So everything God does it, and it's good. It's good. It's good. And then verse 31, what he does is very good. So then how striking, look at chapter two, verse 18. Chapter two, verse 18, then is striking. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. It's not good. You say, why can it be not good even before the fall? What is not good about this? What's the deficiency here? And what God is saying, it's not just that Adam can't find anybody to reproduce with, though I think that that's, um, you know, that's part of it, but why? He's looking around at all the other animals, and what he's saying is he's saying, there's no one here who's right for me, who's a companion, there's no one here who I can relate with, someone that I can ha have union with, that, that the animal kingdom is, is not there. They're different. There's, there's no soul. There's a companion lacking for Adam. That's why it's not good. And then why the narrative is presented this way in this sequence is because Eve then is presented as a gift, that a spouse is a gift, not just her femaleness, but the fact that she's a companion for Adam. You notice verse 22. Verse 22, when you really picture the, the drama here, is really unusual, and I'm fascinated by it. And this is why. You say, Eve is created from Adam's side. And Augustine, long ago, uh, kind of rhetorically said, well, she's not uh, made from his foot so that he can trample over her, and she's not made from his head that he, she's to lord over him, but she's made from his side to capture this notion of companionship. But after she's made from his side right next to him, look at verse 22. God then brings the woman to the man. You say, well, wait a second here. That's a very interesting, uh, if you play it out in your head. So she's made right next to him, but then it's as if she's taken away from him only to be brought back by God. You say, why is it told that way? And I think it must be because we're to see it as a gift. To see God's giving of your spouse is a good gift to you. Again, when's the last time you thought about that? Say, how guilty am I? I? Don't see Mallory as a gift, but alternatively, someone to help me get by, someone to help my Sunday mornings a bit more efficiently. Come on, I, you know, I'm gonna be, aren't you here to help me out a bit? Say, well, actually, my spouse is a, a good gift from God to help me as a companion. And notice here, ladies and gentlemen, again, I, you gotta love scripture, doesn't, hide anything and talks about what's really true. You say sex too is a good gift from God. How often does that come, right? That you have people say, well, you Christians, you're so prudish. You don't understand pleasure. Uh, you, you must, uh, you know, you, you have this great tradition of denial. You say, not at all. You only need to look at verse 28 of chapter one, right? It's good. Be fruitful and multiply. Or how about verse 25 of chapter two? Notice the man and the woman were naked and they felt no shame. God affirms union. He affirms sex. It's a good. He wants us to enjoy it within the boundaries of marriage of one man and one woman. You see, and that's so often where we go wrong. 
You say, at least from the 1960s, you think about how people have processed these truths. And what we've done is this. You say, okay, well, um, sex is to be enjoyed within the boundaries of one man and one woman. That's far too limiting. Uh, And what we do is we kind of chuck this to the side. Say, we're not going to do that. Uh, Rather, what we want to do really is to um, feel good whenever we want it, to indulge whenever we want to. And this is how we maximize pleasure, right? That's kind of the the motto of the day. If it feels good, go for it. That is your, your right and your liberty and the, the maximizing of pleasure. And you see, I, particularly in the office, the pastoral office, you have to see the great irony, the sad irony of this move. You say, how many men have I known in my life and counseled in recent days? You say, the problem is that they, um, because it's on demand on a screen, right? That they say, well, we've been told if it feels good, do it. It's not harming anyone. You can't get any STDs. You can't reproduce or so forth. You know, it feels good, go for it. And then what happens is that they can't enjoy real sex with their spouse. You say, what an irony. We've gotten rid of the biblical model to maximize pleasure. We've thought we're doing that and really what we've done is we've minimized a good and sacred and glorious thing. The same can be said with my university buddies and non-Christian universities, right? You say the people who had the greatest number of conquests back in their early 20s are now the ones who seem to be least satisfied with the relationship that matters most to them. Because what happens, you say, well, now all of a sudden that what I should be enjoying with my spouse is now a comparison game or that they have real trouble committing. So you see what we've done. We said, no thanks to the biblical model. Don't, far too constraining. I need to maximize pleasure. And in so going for that, what we've done is we've enslaved ourselves and we've made it so we enjoy it so much less. Say it's a bit of a microcosm of the whole divine drama, right? Say, I don't need God. I'm gonna do life on my own. That's where real freedom is, only to find we're boxed into a corner and that we're scared and lonely and need a way out. And I hope we see today that marriage and your spouse and your bodies, genders, a good gift from God, that enjoying those things within his boundaries is what makes us most free. And the challenge we have today, as I said a moment ago, is to winsomely and kindly explain this truth to those who really don't see it that way, right? Well, why do you hate a person who does it? They say, no, not at all. They say, we have full expectation that a non-Christian wouldn't adhere to Genesis 1 and 2, right? Too often, we Christians, we get mad at non-Christians for doing non-Christian things. Say, no, not at all. We can be kind and gracious. Our task is to say, when they're struggling, you say, look at God's plan. Which do you think's better? Say, he's got a plan here. It's about a divine gift. It's about accepting, uh, you know, recognizing who we are, enjoying and, and delighting in him. And I think that you notice here too, wonderfully, you say only, only God could do this. Do you know the first ever recorded human words? Or a song. The first ever recorded human words in history are a song from Adam celebrating the gift of Eve. Verse 23. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. In other words, Adam breaks into song and says, God, you've given me the great, a great gift. Let's hold marriage in high honor. May we see our marriages and our bodies and sex within God's boundaries as good gifts from him. Be fruitful, multiply, enjoy the companionship. Marriage is a good gift from God. Now point number two also, I know, delicate. The husband and the wife are complementary. 
You notice this word complimentary in the notes is spelled with an E in the middle. So complimentary is sometimes have an I in the middle. If you compliment someone, that means you say a nice thing or commend them for doing something nice. But with an E in the middle, that means that there's, I always remember it because you have the word complete in there or kind of the, the you, you get on the way to completeness. And that's the idea that the husband and the wife are different, but together uh, both are stronger. That's the idea, what we mean by complementary, that there are different roles to play. And I think this comes out, again, this is where the modern ear gets uh, really off. If you notice, uh, verses 18 and verses 20 use a word that's offensive to the modern ear. It says, why Adam, why it's not good, is because Adam doesn't have, notice, a helper fit for him. Two times, a helper fit for him. So, you know, you have some, and they'd say, well, look at this. First pages of the Bible, and look at how sexist it is. It says that Adam's not happy and he's incomplete because he doesn't have a maid. That Adam's real problem here is that he doesn't have someone to do his laundry and and cook his breakfast. And and what the Bible says is that he's given a maid, an Eve. Is that what this means, that he needed a helper, someone to serve him? He said, that's a terrible reading of the text. He said, what we get at it here at helper is that the reason why Eve is his helper is because she helps Adam out of himself. So I think Luther, the reformer, captured this well. He used a little Latin phrase. He says, Adam's problem uh, before Eve is that he's cor curwum in se. A lovely little phrase that says his heart, who he was, his heart was inwardly bent on himself. That he couldn't get beyond himself. There was no one to help him out. Yes, he has the animals and he's naming them, but he has no companionship, no one to help him take him to new vistas to see different things about himself and the world. And that's the sense that Eve is the helper. Not to serve him as someone subordinate, you know, kind of a doormat mentality is where the modern mind goes, sadly, but someone who helps Adam, who's wonderfully different, to help Adam out of himself. You say, think of the more common use of helper. Say, when you think of helper now, you say, you don't think of someone serving you in your house, but rather you think of someone who helps you do things you can't do on your own. Say, when I have a problem around the house that I call my father or my father-in-law for help because they have an expertise where I don't, right? It's not that they're a doormat for me, that they're helping me, but rather they're helping me out of myself. They're uh, enabling me to, to have faculties and an efficiency that I don't have on my own. That's the idea here. Here's Adam, he's naming the animals. Say there's no companion for himself. He's kind of this isolated heart, inwardly belt, belt, bent on himself. What he needs is someone to help him out of himself And that's where Eve comes in as a gift. And you have to love, again, back to that first song in verse 23. Why is this song so important? Because it recognizes these two great truths. What does Adam say when he sees Eve? He says, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Say, there's the sameness. He recognizes a similarity in Eve, right? This is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. In other words, those two verses are like, she's just like me. But then the last two parts of the verse, right? She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man, that she's, that points to difference. And you say, isn't that true, those of us who are married? Say, isn't that so true about your spouse? So you think back to when you first got butterflies and you met them, and hopefully now you still have love and it's a a different kind, right? It's anchored in sacrifice and commitment. But isn't that true deep down, you know it. You say, the reason why I'm so drawn to my wife is that she's just like me. She understands me. 
She can think about the struggles that I'm having and process those and lives in the world that I do. She's just like me, but she's so very different. See, that's the biblical idea. Sameness, equal before God, just like us, but wonderfully different. Bone of my bones, but something different. There's woman and man, that's the difference, but also like me. And you say, this is the glory of God's creation, this kind of specialization. Both equal before God, the the male and the female, of course, but different roles to play, like a specialization. You say, again, these ideas of roles. Roles in the home and roles in the church is another area, again, that we've kind of said, I don't know about that, saying that men and women are are different. You know, that's very much out of fashion. I just want to make one point. I wish, you know, this is a whole sermon in itself, but just think about this, that when we erode the male-female roles, in other words, when we say males and females are interchangeable parts, even though I think that, you know, it's, it's unscientific, it certainly goes against all the chemistry, but when we say that, you notice how it manifests itself? and a lot of social ills. That when we get rid of the roles of the male and the female and the husband and the wife, what it often results in, what it has resulted in, is male aggression and promiscuity. I remember five years ago that I get to The Economist, and about five years ago, you know, I get my issue, and the uh, the, the front page says, the weaker sex. And the main article, again, rather sophisticated journals, say the main article is about how men have lost their way. And even a secular publication like that can see why, right? We told a lot of young men, right? Think about the Genesis account that we have. If you don't have that, you're here by chance. You can't really have a purpose. You just have to outcompete the others. You're kind of, you know, just blind chance. You're here by cells and by, you know, by, by uh, just a, a mass of cells. And there's no real role for you to play in a home or in, in the church. You say, well, what then? Well, the default position seems to have been male aggression and promiscuity. That what I submit, again, very delicately, is that when we are under God's authority and recognize there are complementary roles to be played, that there really is something to being male and female under God's authority, that everybody flourishes, that we can enjoy our specializations, celebrate the differences between males and females, but also the equal image bearers before God. That's the idea that God presents. You know, how awful it would be some have seen the the musical My Fair Lady, you know, Mr. Higgins, he says, why can't a woman be more like a man? You say, that would be terrible. You say, thank goodness God in his wisdom has given us this complementary relationship between males and females with different roles to help us out of ourselves to see things differently, to take us to new vistas, and together be image bearers. So marriage is a good gift from God. The husband and the wife are complementary. Lastly, did you know marriage has a purpose? This comes, I think, most pointedly in verse 24 of chapter 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That marriage has a purpose. Do you ever think about that? You ask, uh, yesterday I was officiating a wedding, and you know, you, I always ask the bride and the groom, why are you getting married? And uh, inevitably, you know, somewhere in there, they'll say something like this. Well, you know, I've fallen in love. And that tells, you know, right away that they've got this understanding of love as being an emotion primarily. And you say, all of us who've been married a long time, you say, be very careful there because that changes, right? It's got to be anchored in sacrifice and in the will. Or you have another answer that everyone really likes. And they say, well, you know, she makes me really happy. Or he makes me a better person. And everyone says, isn't that lovely? But if you think about those answers, any one of the three, because I'm in love, because she makes me happy, because he makes me a better person, anything along those lines, all of those are self-referential. 
All of those ultimately are selfish. I married Mallory because she makes me happy. I married Mallory because she made me a better person. I made Mallory because she makes me feel a certain way. Say, all those are about me. What if it is here that this unity that God talks about from the opening pages of the Bible, the real purpose of marriage is to put God and gospel virtue on display. You say, how do the husband and the wife become one flesh? Well, it's impossible without the truth of what Christ has done being practiced in this most intimate of relationships. That say oneness in our marriage requires grace and forgiveness and the unconditional love that we see put on display in the Lord Jesus, right? So you say, when you need to forgive your spouse, you pause, you say as a Christian, you say, wait, I've been forgiven much by Jesus and this is how I'm to behave in my marriage. You know, where this is said explicitly, I'll just, you don't have to flip there, but this is Ephesians 5 and from verse 31. So again, Paul writing millennia later takes up Genesis 2.24. So listen to this. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So Paul cites Genesis 2.24. And then he says, this mystery is profound and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. Wow. The husband and the wife, when they're in Christ, are a walking illustration of Christ's love for his people. That so when you think about the purpose of your marriage as Christ followers, it's not, well, I'm gonna be happy today or my life's gonna be a bit easier. I'm feeling good because my spouse has helped me through. But rather to say, God's given me the gift of a spouse who's helped me out of myself who therefore is the relationship that I'm to live out the truth of the gospel with on a daily basis. How do I know if I'm really a Christian if I don't extend grace and forgiveness even to my spouse? I'm to put Christ on display. That's the illustration of marriage. That we're to bring glory to God. Why are you married, Christian lady and Christian man? To be a walking illustration of what Christ has done for you, to put God on display. Now, as I land the plane here, so to speak, you say all of us have been imperfect. Say, Christ is the perfect model of marriage. You say, how selfish I've been to recognize today in our relationships, to say, Lord, I need you because my sin is on full display before my spouse. I've made a mess of things. I've not treated them the way that you would want me to treat them, and I failed really as a good illustration of your gospel. Thank goodness that we're forgiven in Christ and that in our years together as husbands and wives that we can grow in him and grow in our relationships and ever more, right, to get better and better and more mature in our relationship. That's our prayer at Providence Church. In others, you know, you're single. You think about how something like this might inform as you think or if you want to be married, how it might inform your decision. You say, well, am I just gonna jump at the first opportunity? I pray not how much better to be single, right, than in a bad union that doesn't recognize these truths. And ultimately, if you're single, be it for any reason, you say all of us have, if you're Christian, you have the perfect marriage spouse in Christ. That there's intimacy with him and there's certainly intimate friendships, which is a different topic. We often don't talk about that. But if you're single, to think about what is a good marriage? What's a biblical marriage? What's the point of it? What about Christ as my perfect partner? Am I satisfied in him? Again, if you're in a bad marriage to keep living out your calling in Christ to be the light and salt that you are, and say, keep praying and witnessing. You say, that's a great hope that all of us have. And so I do pray in that key point, right? Do I view my spouse, key takeaway, do I view my spouse as a gift from God 
with whom I am to illustrate gospel love to a watching world. That's what God would present us to. Marriage is a gift. It has a purpose. The roles can magnify him and help us out of ourselves to become even more mature Christians. So may we be those here at Providence Church that can say again with the writer of the Hebrews, let marriage be held in high honor and let's uh, be able to speak about it winsomely and to put it on display for those who I think desperately do want answers to these questions. So I'll invite uh, Ian and the team back up as I pray. Father, we are imperfect spouses both in the earthly sense of the marriage that we've been sinful and been selfish and also we've been imperfect spouses to you as your bride, the church. And we thank you that you always are interceding for us that our sins are forgiven past, present, and future. And Lord, we do pray that you would help us to be better spouses, to really wrestle with uh, the way you've laid it out at the beginning to help us to see our, our marriages and our families as good gifts from you, to understand the roles that we play as to, to complement one another and to embrace those. And uh, most of all, Lord, to be able to explain this in a way where we, we're not aiming to offend, but deep down we do believe many are hurting and anxious about these kinds of topics and all of us would be able to rest in the plan that we have and enjoy our union with you. So may we put Christ on display in these relationships for his sake. Amen. Well, church, let's respond to the Lord. Stand and sing. Take my life and live.